This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. So nice to have a chance to speak to the Green Gulch Sangha. I'm looking at all your pictures on this wonderful Zoom screen. So many familiar faces and some new ones. I do wish, of course, I was giving this talk when it was scheduled back in February in the actual Green Gulch Zendo. Such a lovely place to give a talk. And of course, then I would get to see your faces in person instead of talking to this computer. But we will make the best of the situation and see what we can we can do. I want to thank uh, Jiryu and Fu for inviting me to make this talk. These are challenging and painful times. Living in a world of systemic racism brought so painfully to us by the iPhone recording of the killing of George Floyd. The pandemic with its worldwide sickness, death and tremendous economic pain and disruption a country so divided on most every issue. And now the fires ranging in the Bay Area exacerbated by the looming existential threat of climate change. It's a lot to take in. Um, I, I'm thinking about the fires currently because uh, there are three fires approaching Tassajara. Uh, two, one from the north in Carmel and one from the northeast on the river road called the River Fire and one from the uh, west, the Dolan Fire. So uh, we evacuated Jamesburg on Tuesday and we've evacuated everybody from Tassar except for two students which remained and then we have one student who uh, came in from Green Gulch and we'll have and we have two professional firefighters there. So right now we have five people at Tassara to defend Tassara, or at least prepare to defend it, and we'll take it day by day and hope for the best. It's amazing to me the history of fires at Tassara. I was, in the, I was director of Tassara in the 1977 Marble Cone Fire. Then there was the 1999 fire. Then there was the famous 2008 fire, which the, fire, the book Fire Monks was written about. And then the 2016 Sobranus fire that we closed Tassar for six weeks. And all of these fires we have defended uh, Tassar successfully and we hope that that will be the case this time. But it certainly reminds us that things are changing. The fires are much worse than they used to be. They come more frequently and it's just a product of our times. I wish everyone who is near a fire, evacuating from a fire, or has been caused harm by a fire well. Not since I was in college in the 60s and I woke up to what was going on in the world have I felt the urgency for action and the request to meet the moment more than now. Back then there was the war in Vietnam, the inc incredible senseless killing, 
58,000 Americans lost their lives, probably over a million Vietnamese. The civil rights movement with its encouraging moments of the March on Washington and then the despair with the death of Martin Luther King in 1968, the beginning of the environmental movement, the anti-nuclear movement, feminism, gay liberation, was all wrapped up into one thing called the counterculture where the entire country seemed to be breaking apart. I didn't know what to do. I had finished all my training to be a math professor and that had been my career path since I was about 10 years old, but it didn't make sense anymore. So I headed to California in 1970, hoping to find some way to clarify my mind. In one of those great fortunate moments, I drove into Tassara, I had heard about it back in New Mexico, and managed to practice with Suzuki Roshi. And at the end of that summer, it was clear that that was going to be the way for me to lead my life. And since then, of course, Zen has been a part of my life for the last 50 years. And so today I'm gonna to talk about the Bodhisattva path because I believe also at this time, Zen and the Bodhisattva way is as relevant for meeting this moment and these times as it was for me back then 50 years ago. Two weeks ago, we were very fortunate in having Reverend Shohako Kimura lead a seven day Genzoe at City Center. Genzoe is kind of a modified Sashin where we sit a lot of Zazen and Shohaku gives us an hour and a half talk in the morning and an hour and a half talk in the afternoon. It's so wonderful to see Shohaku Okamura again. He's been a regular Genzoe lecturer at Zen Center and he's just such a marvelous person. Um, anyway, the subject of the Genzoe was Mujo Seppo, insentient beings expounding Dharma. The Dogen Zenji's well-known Waka poem expressing the meaning of this is, colors of mountain peaks and echoes of valley streams, all as they are, nothing other than my Shakyamuni's voice and image. Colors of the mountain peaks and echoes of valley streams, all as they are, nothing other than my Shakyamuni's voice and image. Don't we feel that whenever we're hiking in the mountains, looking at the mountains, listening to the sound of the stream, something that you feel so powerfully when you're at Tassara that seems like Buddha's tongue and body are speaking to you. Another poem of a similar uh, 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 sentiment given by So Dung Po to the abbot of the Dongling Monastery. And this is that version. The sounds of the creeks are the teachings, the broad long, long tongue of the Buddha. The colors of the mountains are nothing but the pure Dharmakaya, the unconditioned body of Buddha. All night long I hear 84,000 gathas. What can I say about this in the future? Well, don't we feel the planet is teaching us? It's telling us how much harm we are causing it and all living beings that live on it. We need to listen. We need to hear the mountains and rivers expounding the Dharma. 
they're teaching us as much as any written document <coughs> could teach us. <clears throat> Reverend Okamura also shared the uh, use of an image of a bird as a path to describe the Bodhisattva way. And I wrote out about three pages on it because I was fascinated by this idea of the Bodhisattva path being a bird flying through the air, leaving no trace. It was called the traceless bird's path. And there were two other roads that were sort of associated with it, which was the hidden path, which is the path of emptiness, and also the path of extending our arms to everyone, the Bodhisattva path. And I love to actually go into it, but I realized when I actually printed out my document this morning that there was no way I could cover it while I was covering the other stuff that I wanted to talk about. So I will refer you to this wonderful book if you're really interested, Just This Is It by Taigan Layton. And in chapter seven, he gives a marvelous talk about the bird's path. So the third aspect of the bird's path, extending the hands to help others. This is really the essential meaning of the Bodhisattva path. And like Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, with all those hands and arms to see your suffering and to help you. And how do we take this Bodhisattva path? I was thinking about it and I thought if I wanted to get across one aspect of our practice that I thought would be essential and has been meaningful to me all my life, is, it is this. It is commitment. Continuous commitment to practice. I was listening to a talk on NP NPR by uh, Sadie Smith and she said, you are what you commit to. What you commit to is what defines your life. That really struck a chord with me. More important than your talents is what you commit to, what you commit to that will define your life. When I was a young Zen student uh, at a lecture at Tassara that uh, the then abbot Richard Baker gave, he said, what would it be like if you aligned your life with your deepest intentions. If you committed to and acted on your deepest intentions. I thought about that. I thought, well, what are my deepest intentions? Do I even know what my deepest intentions are? If I ask you that question and you would say, oh, well, of course I know what my deepest intentions are. I don't know. It's an important question to ask ourselves. And if we were to ask ourselves and had some inkling of what our deepest intentions were, how would we act on them? How would we transform our life to align with our deepest intentions? Uh, Reverend Okamura in his book talks about the definition of a bodhisattva. So the usual answer to that in um, Buddhism is our, our, our commitments, our deepest intentions are talked about as vow as our vows. 
you know, the usual definition is a solemn promise, a pledge, or personal commitment. But in Buddhism, it has a much wider meaning. Part of the definition of a bodhisattva is a person who lives by vow instead of karma. Shakya, uh, Reverend Okamura in his book, uh, Living by Vow, says, ordinary people are those who live being pulled by their karma. Bodhisattvas are those who live by their vows. You know what karma is. Karma is our conditioning, our personality, our desire, our needs, the values and ideas that drives us, our belief systems from our childhood and culture, much of which, which causes us suffering. What does it mean to make this shift from karma to vow? It is not abandoning karma. Everything remains. We don't reject karma or abandon it. It can't be done. Karma is like a rushing river flowing through our life. And if I think of vow, vow would be you in that boat, steering the boat through the rushing river with vow as your oar, your, what is that thing underneath the boat? That, keel that keeps it in the right direction. Yes, uh, that's what we need in our life. We need that vow to keep us in the right direction. I'm just going to repeat for all of you, even though you, I assume, repeat them quite often because we repeat them here at this lecture. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. These are impossible goals. So what does it mean to set an impossible goal? What does it mean to say something that can't be done? It's a kind of contradiction we vow to do things that are impossible. Reverend Okamura says there is a fundamental contradiction even in the word bodhisattva. Bodhi, which means in Sanskrit, awakening, and sattva meaning sentient being. Sentient being meaning someone who's wandering around, living in karma, making continuous mistakes. How can we be both a sentient beings and an awakened being at the same time? He mused on that. He didn't really give us an answer. He just said it was a kind of inherent contradiction. But what it means if you take on an impossible vow is that it's endless. Since we value continuous ongoing practice, you need an attitude of softness. To go along with this dedication. Otherwise, you'll be willing yourself to follow these vows and you'll burn out. It requires a kind of, like a marathon. You know, this is a lifelong pledge. Since it's impossible, it can't be measured. So I think this vow of sort of as a compass to our life, it's not a bunch of specific goals particularly, although it is, if you go to Tassar, you set the goal to get up at whatever they're getting up at normally in the morning, 340 and you try to follow the schedule. But more, a vow is something that you fall back on 
as the direction when you're wondering which way to go. I think it's also humbling to take on an impossible vow. When I was watching uh, uh, Reverend Okamura uh, 10 days ago, I, I was reminded about what a humble, straightforward person he is. And when I think about Suzuki Roshi as wildly inspiring and uh, present as he was, he was also one of the humblest people I ever met. I was, I'm reminded of a, a, a lecture I was in at, at uh, Tassara. I think it was uh, 1971, the summer of 71. And uh, apparently Tassara, the, the, there was a senior staff meeting with Suzuki Roshi and the senior staff apparently were complaining about, probably they're complaining about the guest students like me or the, uh, guess about not knowing how to follow the rules or do what to do. And Sukurishi apparently got quite angry with them. And uh, so he gave a very short talk that night and then said, I'm sure you have some questions. And one of the, one of the senior staff members raised his hand and said, Suzuki Roshi, uh, you know, kind of apologetic for how he'd been, you know, I, uh, I, I've been studying for five years and I still find it hard to be kind to these people. And Suzuki said, five years is nothing. You don't know how hard it is to be, to love some people. You don't know how hard it is to love some people. And in that room, that night, that quiet night at Tassar, there were maybe, I don't know, only maybe 60 or 70 people in the Zendo. That was when the old Zendo was down by the creek. And there was a kind of stillness after he said that kind of like everybody in, even I had felt like he had loved me. I had not been there that long. I mean, he was just that way, you know, and to take on that, to say, well, that my challenge in life is to love everybody I meet or, or treat them from that place. Well, that is, that is an impossible task. And it's, it's a vow in some sense. And um, it's the kind of thing, of course, which made me realize that Buddhism, as much as there is this emphasis on wisdom, and certainly wisdom is the other wing of the bird of Buddhism, compassion and love, the other one, that love is really what the whole story is about. And I was very happy to have learned that lesson early in my Zen career when I was busy sitting long sashins trying to get enlightened. So, there's no use to get discouraged because we're making a commitment that is essentially impossible and we'll be making mistakes continuously. But I think it's the essence of a human being to make such a noble commitment. So I wanna go into another aspect of uh, vow and that aspect of vow is repentance. Repentance is intimately connected to vow. Vow and repentance are two sides of one practice. Because our vow is endless, our practice is never complete. This awareness 
of the incompleteness is repentance. That was a quote from Reverend Okamura, and I really thought it was an interesting way to think about repentance. You know, every morning at the beginning of service at Zen Center, we chant, all my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. I need to do this every morning. I need to repent from the karma of my life, from all my delusion and all the delusion that I have that causes harm and suffering to other people in many unconscious ways. Even when I try to do something good, I end up causing harm. And of course I was relieved when I read a, a, a lecture Suzuki Roshi gave, one of his last ones at Tassara in 1971 called uh, A Speck of Dust, and he rec recounted this. Many Zen students come to Zen Center. Is this something meaningful or not? If something good happens, at the same time, something bad will happen. Most likely, if one good thing happens, 12 things or more than 20 bad things will happen. So we should think when we pick up a speck of dust, whether it is a good thing or a bad thing to do. But if you don't do anything, what will happen? Or oh, excuse me, but if you don't, nothing will happen. That is also true. What will you do? To, spec to pick up a speck of dust, is there's a famous koan about this, which I won't go to, in, but it's the I, it was really around founding a monastery, but it means to do anything that you commit to. And he's saying, if you commit to doing something, of course, maybe even it's a very good thing to do, many bad things will happen. So do you not try to help people who are suffering? Or do you try to help people who are suffering? And of course, the answer from Suzuki Roshi is, of course, you try to help people who are suffering. Of course, you build a Tassahara and hope it's going to turn out to be the best it can, but you accept the fact because you're a limited, deluded human being, even a very good Zen master, many, much harm will happen and many bad things will happen. So we repent. We repent our, our mistakes and apologize. And also we shouldn't be too surprised when something we tried to do that was wonderful turned out to have shadow consequences. It's kind of like, you know, when you have an, uh, an impossible vow, it's like trying to empty an ocean with a teaspoon. You know, how hard you try, you'll never get there. So this endless practice, and you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm 75 now, I'm not sure Maybe my practice was best when I was 32, I think actually I was probably, I probably peaked then. And, but anyway, we keep trying, you know, we keep making an effort to help. And we shouldn't try to compare ourselves to other people because if you've got an infinite goal and you're at zero, you can be confident that everybody else is at zero too compared to that infinite goal. So we're all in the same boat together, trying to make an effort, trying to help. I reminded, you know, when we do our precept ceremony, our uh, three pure precepts, I vow not to harm, 
I vow to do all good. I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. Isn't this what we want to do, not to do harm? Isn't that our deepest intention? Really? To help other people? To be kind? To make a difference? I think so. So I'm going to share uh, this case. Um, Guishan was uh, the Tenzo, the chief cook in the monastery where he practiced with his teacher, Baijong. One day, Guishan was standing near Baijong's room and Baijong asked Guishan, who is it? Guishan replied, it is Gaishan, Guishan, excuse me, it is Guishan. Bajan said, uh, would you dig in the fireplace and see if there's an ember, any fire or not? So Guishan took the poker out, checked in the fireplace and said, uh, there's no fire. And uh, Bajan got up, came over, dug deep into the ashes and found a tiny ember. He showed it to Guishan and said, what is this? Isn't this a fire? And uh, Guishan was enlightened. Of course, we always love these stories when someone's immediately enlightened by their teacher, showing them their Buddha nature. Of course, the fire in this story is Guishan's Buddha nature, which he wasn't feeling. He didn't feel that energy inside us that motivates our practice, that Buddha nature that we have always with us, the fire of the life force that enables us to aspire to be a better person, no matter what the difficulties. To be helpful, to live a productive life and practice the way. Having a faith in our Buddha nature having some sense of it, knowing that ember is inside us. Well, I think it's difficult to be uh, aware of that ember, that fire, that Buddha nature in us. We forget. We forget a lot. But I think if we practice um, more, after a while we'll forget less often we'll remember more often that we have the fire of our Buddha nature to help us because we must have it. It is there. It helps us wake up to the reality of the life that inspires us to live a life of wisdom and compassion. So I think our deepest intention is to wake up to the reality of our life. And when our self-concern causes us to deviate from that, we return to the reality of our life. Or to put it another way, when our self-concern blinds us to what is going on, then our vow returns us to the reality of our life. This returning is our vow. It is the dynamic activity bringing us back to our actual life. 
So after Guishan had completed his training with Baijan, he went off and uh, founded a monastery up in a, in a famous mountain. And for many years, he just practiced by himself, living off the mountain fruits and roots and stuff, kind of famous for uh, sincere, solitary, solo practice. But eventually, this vow he had to practice was fulfilled in that hundreds of monks started showing up and they built an enormous uh, training temple. At one point it was said 1,500 people trained with him and he had 45 transmitted disciples. And that's when vow turned from being a solitary thing you do, but Sangha vow, the practice of Sangha the power of a Sangha that vows together. And he was a great example of that, producing that. A group, uh, Suzuki Roshi used to say, uh, group practice is a shortcut to awakening. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, group practice. We, Zen Center has, for the last 50 years, sort of made residential practice the cornerstone of our, our training. And, you know, residential practice is difficult. People irritate you. The people you uh, don't like end up being your roommates and people you like end up leaving for various reasons. It's, 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 it's difficult practice. And yet it's the practice that actually wakes you up, keeps you awake and uh, really brings out that desire to uh, be a bodhisattva. There's a, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we say, well, I, I really don't have, I'm not sure I have any Buddha nature. I'm not sure I have what you're talking about. There's a term in Buddhism called self-secret. It means there aren't actually any secrets. It's all completely open to us right now. The problem is we create the secret through our attachments, through our inability to see through things, our hesitation to open up. So practically speaking, the Dharma appears to be a secret. Our Buddha nature appears to be a secret, but it's not that way because it's really, it's, but it's not that way because it's really secret. It's a secret because we make it a secret. So we say self-secret. This is a very interesting turn of phrase. It's a very accurate term to describe what's going on in Guishan, not seeing his Buddha nature. Uh, I've been informed by a friend who had children. I, I, I didn't have any myself. The children at a certain age play a game where they put something over their heads and think they're invisible. They put a bag on their head and say, you can't see me, you can't see me. Well, actually, of course, we can see them, it's just they can't see us. A self-secret is something like that. We walk around with a bag on our head and we think there's some secret we have to discover that we can see. Sometimes we're in desperate to find out that secret. What is the meaning of my life? What is, where is my Buddha nature? And all that's required is to take the bag off our head and we realize we can see perfectly well we just had a bag on our head. This is the case for your Buddha nature. 
it's right there. And it's important to remember this. There is work to be done and should and 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 that work is deeply meaningful. I'm thinking uh, about Zen Center at this strange time with all its temples physically closed and our teaching coming over Zoom. What will Zen Center look like? We're going through a lot of self-reflection now. We're examining how we can be more diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible. We're thinking about our teaching and training programs and if they can be or should be modified to adjust to a future that's different than what the past was. And of course, all of this has to be sustained in some financial way, some way to sustain all our teachers and students. What will our country look like and what will the world look like as this pandemic recedes? And what will Zen Center look like? I am hopeful. John Lewis was so inspiring in his op-ed piece in the New York Times where he said, though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I've done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is, more, is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. And I do feel that way. I look to the younger generation, the younger people in Zen Center and the younger people in this country and the world, because I think they have a calling and a chance to make a real difference at this moment. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.